This episode is brought to you by Kitsch. What came next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Jan Broberg is a mother, actress, speaker, and advocate. When she was a young girl, she and her parents faced grooming and sexual abuse at the hands of a neighbor. The events that unfolded afterwards, which include two childhood abductions by the same man, are a clear example of the cyclical nature of abuse. However, all that Jan has done to heal since, which includes a book, a documentary entitled Abducted in Plain Sight, a scripted series called A Friend of the Family, her nonprofit organization, a podcast, and more are all beautiful examples of her resiliency and strength. Thus, we are so grateful she joined us today to share all that came next for her as a survivor and parent. I think my family members and my close friends would describe me as vivacious, full of life, a lot of energy, an indomitable spirit. I rarely give up. I keep trying and keep going. I think they would call me a generous person. I really do have a big heart, sometimes to a fault. I really care about people and about making improvements in the world, and that has come in different ways throughout my life. I have had wonderful support my immediate family, my parents, my sisters, best friends, and my son have all had a huge impact on how I've been able to move forward. There is truly something about the network of support from those closest to you that does make a huge catapultic kind of advancement in what you're doing. I was born into a very loving home. I had kind of the Ideal is a word that I don't really like and use, but if I look back on that time in my life, in my early childhood, it was idyllic in so many ways. My parents weren't yellers. They didn't scream and yell. They were kind. They said nice words. They gave us compliments. We got hugged and kissed and loved and stories read to us when we were tucked into bed. My dad was a person that had a very beautiful sense of humor. He and his twin brother, my uncle Dick, had these sayings that they had developed through the years. Those sayings, my sisters and I have talked about this, they have saved our lives because they were things like every day's a bonus. So even on the worst day, every day's a bonus. Getting that one more day, it gives you perspective. My dad owned a flower shop. It was a good business, but it wasn't to make a lot of money. My father was a very generous person. If somebody needed 
flowers for a funeral or for a wedding and they just were running out of budget or whatever. My dad was so good and generous to give them a little extra. Mom was a stay-at-home mom like most women were back in the 60s. We'd get on our bikes on a Saturday morning and we'd drive off with some of our friends in the neighborhood, including the Birchtolds, go riding out to Ross Park or go down to Bilo's and buy penny candy and then go up to the little park by our house. We'd be gone for hours and nobody worried. Nobody was scared. It felt like Camelot. It was safe. It felt very warm. Everybody knew everybody. Our area by Idaho State University, we lived right across the street from the football stadium. So our community around us were a lot of professors teaching at the university or associated in some way. We just had an open door policy at my house. We were taught to love everybody and that everybody counts, that there's a God in heaven that loves his children and we're all his children. That was really the basis of my childhood and that's what we were taught. There was never a thought that some sort of danger was lurking in our community. We could walk into anybody's house in my neighborhood. Nobody locked their doors. So whether we were going to the Hoffmans, we were going to play over there in their big backyard or swing on their hammocks in the backyard, or we were going to go down to the Birchtold's house that was just up the block, we felt safe. We met the Birchtold's at church. So you're already walking into a place of trust that you feel is safe. When they moved in, I was nine and their oldest son was also nine. They believe in the Ten Commandments. They believe in taking a casserole to your neighbor who's lost a loved one or to somebody who's less fortunate. In 1970, 71, when this family moved in, they looked just like us. There's a mom that stays at home, bakes cookies, and teaches us how to paint ceramics. All the kids are at her house because they have a trampoline and it looks like everybody else. It looks like going to our cousin's house. There were things at the Birchtold's house that were just that benign. Like, oh, I'll take all the kids to the movie. You guys just do your thing. I want to go see this movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The parents, who probably didn't see that movie, is based on science fiction. He was trying to plant seeds in our little minds that were very malleable. We were nine and ten. He had four boys and the three boys matched us girls in age. We became very good friends, especially Karen and Jimmy, and then myself and Jerry. I write about Jerry. He's the first boy that had ever really held my hand. We were at the park and he was swinging me. It's in my little diary that I've taken around to so many speaking events, it's falling apart now, but it's written right there. And so the groomer, the person that is trying to create this scenario is making sure that everybody has a best friend. He becomes my dad's best friend. He makes sure that Gail and my mom become friends and compliments my mom on how she dresses and could you help my wife? You have such good taste in clothes. I'd love to see her in some other clothes. Could you help her? And just made sure that everybody had a best friend. All the kids, making sure they had all the toys. Back then, my mother and father had never heard the words pedophile or grooming. When you talk about cyclical abuse and snowballing abuse, it's that grooming process that makes you trust someone. So if anyone that thinks this could never happen to me has ever been conned into buying something they really didn't need or want, if they've ever had a relationship that they then saw the ugly part of narcissistic behavior begin to happen, I'm assuming that most listeners see that there is a point that comes into somebody's life 
where you're kind of screaming at the TV, don't do it, don't do it. Of course, there are things we regret doing in our lives. And most of the time, those regrets were based on some sort of aspect that groomers use. Well, we're friends, nobody needs to know about this, or oh, I'm so in love with you. We should just go off into the sunset and get our own apartment. There's flattery involved. There's, you're the most beautiful thing in the world. I wish I'd have met you first, but I'm married. I have a cold person in my relationship. They're just not very warm and I just need somebody to talk to. You seem to understand me. I love our conversations. This is how grooming starts. Those things that he did to lead my mother down that path started on practically the first day that they met at church when he started to compliment how my mother had such beautiful daughters. He flattered her like, oh my word, the way they're dressed, they're just so darling. You're such a good mom, basically was what was underneath that early flattery. And then that grows from there. Then that cycle just continues to grow and widen. The circle just widens and widens when they just so very subtly, incrementally raise that bar. And so when you talk about it being cyclical, the abuse didn't really start in any way that looked like abuse. That's what I think is really important. It looked like I'm leading somebody down this road because I care about them. A lot of people didn't get that the parents are groomed. It's the reason people are so ashamed and embarrassed and don't talk about their abuse. The people who are abused are left with this guilt and shame like, I should have known, I should have run, I should have fought. And then you're left with this shame from what happened to you that is not yours to bear. And that's what keeps the cycle of abuse going. It's the secretive nature of it by someone that is trusted that your parents love or that you're told to listen to at church. If you watch A Friend of the Family on Peacock, you will see a scene in there where my dad and Birch told there was a masturbation moment before the first kidnapping that happened between them. That masturbation experience that my dad had with Birch told before he ever kidnapped me took my dad down a path of guilt and shame that I don't think he ever forgave himself. He never saw Birchtold as a predator. He never saw that he was coming after his girls. He never saw any of that. He saw the mistake that he made and felt terrible about it and even went to the church authorities and said, I did this thing. Please discipline me the way the church would discipline you. I don't know how other churches handle it, but in our church, it was something called disfellowshipment. And so there were certain things inside of the church that he was not allowed to do for a period of time. And he went through that process of repenting for what he did, but he confessed it to his church leaders and that's how they handled it. A year later, he was back in full fellowship in the church. And that was a big part of my mother and father's life. We spent a lot of time going to church socials and activities, camping trips with the young women, doing service projects in our congregation. Leading up to that first abduction, there was one incident that I remember was being on the trampoline, having a sleepover with all the kids. And at some point during that night, I woke up and my nightgown was kind of twisted around me and then noticing that my panties were down. I got up off the trampoline. B was there, but I ran into the house and I went and found his wife, who I loved and adored. She was just so sweet and found her and cried. 
I remember him coming in and saying, I don't know what was happening. I saw that she was kind of twisting and turning and restless. So I went out there to see if everything was okay. Because of course, groomers, they're master talkers. Not only can they manipulate every situation and have an answer for everything, but boy, can they talk their way out of anything. So he was like, when I got down there, she was crying in her sleep like she was having a bad dream. I remember him saying, well, why don't you sleep with Gail in our bed, Jan? That'll be wonderful. And I'll just sleep out here on the couch or I'll go back out and check on the other kids. But she was the only one that was twisting and turning. You know, he told my parents he had terrible depression and it had to do with some kind of abusive practices where his dad would make him sleep in the barn out with the animals. And if he would take care of his younger sister, then he would get to sleep in the house was seeing a therapist in California who gave him these tapes that said he was supposed to lay by somebody like the little girl that he used to take care of. So about my age, about 11, 12 years old, because this is his earliest memories of how it was supposed to reprogram basically what had happened in your past that was going to help your depression. You listen to these tapes. I don't know what they said, but it was about a 15, 20 minute process. He asked my mom and dad if he could do that. And they're like, well, okay. And they left the door open mom's walking up and down the hallway, putting clothes away, then would come in quietly into the bedroom. And sure enough, he's on top of the covers and with his big chunky headphones on, listening to this tape recorder type of thing. That's what we had and listen. And then he'd get up and say, okay, I finished my therapy or my homework and talk to mom and dad for a few minutes. He was a member of the family. So was his wife and all five of his kids. They were like the closest friends we'd ever had. And he made sure of that. He basically shut out all of our other friendships. There wasn't time for anybody else. He was always coming up with something fun to do. We were always going on picnics or doing some kind of outing or going on a trip all the time. Looking back on that, my mom said, well, again, we completely trusted what he said, how he's trying to heal from this terrible depression that he had. So those were really the only two things before the first kidnapping that led up to October of 1974. I don't even think I told my mom and dad about the thing happening on the sleepover. Thank you, Kitsch, for sponsoring this episode. Self-care may seem like the hot new trend, but I truly do believe it's essential, and Kitsch's dreamy hair and skincare products prove they agree. With a massive following, Kitsch has created game-changing essentials beauty enthusiasts swear by. Started in 2010 by selling hair ties door-to-door, Literally just a hustle and a dream, Kitsch is self-funded, female-founded, and now carried in over 20,000 retail locations. From satin pillowcases to time-saving towels, Kitsch has its fans and their pocketbooks in mind every step of the process. Kitsch's bestsellers include their satin scrunchies, which I have stocked up on in so many colors, to their heatless satin curling rollers, say bye-bye to heat damage. These are the original, the OG, and still the best heatless curlers. Don't settle for knockoffs. Get the ones that started the craze. I also fell madly in love with all of their gorgeous hair clips and skincare tools. Their travel size containers are super cute and helpful to have on hand, too. And right now, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com WCN. That's right. 30% off anything and everything at mykitsch, spelled M-Y-K-I-T-S-C-H dot com slash W-C-N. One more time, that's mykitsch.com slash W-C-N for 30% off your entire order. 
that first abduction. What happened is he picked me up from my piano lesson. I loved horses and he knew I had a kind of a natural talent for riding. He had it all arranged that we were going to go horseback riding. It was on a school night. My mom was like, oh no, this is not a good night. And my dad had started to kind of pull back. My dad felt like we were spending too much time with him, their family, and felt like we were ignoring our cousins. My dad has an identical twin brother, like I said earlier, and we did tons of stuff with my cousins and at my grandma's house. We were just kind of ignoring everybody and dad was like, we need our own time as a family. He doesn't need to be here with the kids and we don't need to be going somewhere or doing something every two days with this family. Let's just pull back. And it really, I think, triggered Birchdold. I think that's when he knew he was going to lose this battle if he didn't do something soon. So he picks me up from piano, hands me my allergy pill, which he was responsible for getting all of us girls on allergy medication because we all had allergies and he had a great doctor up in Salt Lake and off we went to go get the little scratch tests on our backs. They were in a capsule, so it looked just like my allergy pill that I've been taking for probably a good year at this point. The next thing I knew, I woke up in the back of a moving motorhome. My wrists and my ankles were strapped to the bed. I'd been drugged and a very eerie, high-pitched, monotone, staccato voice was calling me female companion as soon as I heard that voice, I'd been taken to enough movies like Planet of the Apes, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and we watched Lost in Space and The Twilight Zone on the weekends, and I immediately knew that I had been taken by a UFO. I couldn't see who was driving. There was a partition between that back bedroom of the motorhome and the rest of it. There was a little bathroom, and there was a tiny little stall, a cupboard, and inside there, there was a cooler. When I would go in and out of sleep, sometimes the restraints would be off of me and the voice in the box would say, go get something to eat. We have your favorite foods. We've been watching you since you were born. You're a very special person. You have a very special mission. And this went on for several days. The food had drugs in it because I'd fall back into that deep sleep and then I'd be restrained again. And the voice would come on and wake me up. The next time I'd fall back into sleep, I'd wake up and the restraints were off. Now go eat some more and go to the bathroom, telling you everything to do. When you're 12 years old and you've grown up in Camelot, you're scared in a way that I can't describe. It's 100% complete terror. I have no power. I am completely terrorized. I will do whatever they say. Please, will you take me home to my family? Then, about three days in, the partition comes down, the voice says, female companion, you should now go to the male companion, comfort him. It's in this staccato, high-pitched, monotone sounding voice. And they've been talking to you pretty much nonstop for these few days. I've been sequestered. I've been restrained. I've been in this terrible, lonely place for a few days. I've never been away from my family in my life and not under this kind of condition. When I go up to the front of the motorhome to comfort the male companion. I don't know what in the hell that means, but there's B on the couch covered in cuts and blood and he looks dead. I mean, this is somebody that I love. This is three years into having this relationship with my favorite uncle or whatever. He's like that close to my family where I'm like, oh, B, B, wake up, wake up. We've been taken by a UFO. You have to wake up. I wasn't even sure he was alive. And then he comes to and he starts to say, oh, 
we were going out to go horseback riding and there was a white light that came out of the sky and the car started to shake. And I just knew that I had to save you. And oh my gosh, I think I broke the window trying to get you out of the car and I'm bleeding. Oh, Dolly, because he used to call me Dolly. He had a little nickname for everybody. Dolly, what happened? Do you remember? And I'm like, I don't remember. Please just let's go home. I start to explain that I'm the female companion and you're the male companion and we have a special mission. I don't even know what that means yet. I don't know that that means he's going to start raping me to try to have a baby because I'm half alien and I'm half human. That's what the voices had said, that I was part from their world and I was part from this world. My mother's name is Mary. So I'd acted out the Christmas story of Jesus and Joseph and Mary. How many times? At least 10. It was just familiar enough, which is another brainwashing tactic where you take something that's already familiar to the person and you just twist it a little bit. So it seems plausible. Of course, when you're sequestered and your every move is dictated to you, from going to the bathroom to eating food to being restrained and then being let out of those restraints, all of that combined, you believe without question and you're going to do it 100% in order to try and save yourself and your family. That's how he got me and got me in that state of readiness so that over the next few days, he's finding books in the motorhome, books on sexual positions. Oh my word, what is this? I mean, these are things I had never seen before. All of it was scary and all of it was confusing. The voices would come on again through the box and he'd go into a trance. This is how we carried into Mexico. We'd gotten as far as Mazatlan, Mexico. We're in a trailer park there. 47 days later, that's when the Federales working with the FBI finally located us, broke the door down, and took him and me after I'd been sexually assaulted to have a baby to save a dying planet. So there again, there's the layers. I'm half alien, half human. I'm prepubescent. That doesn't happen until long after all of this is over. I don't hit puberty till I'm 17 almost. So I was a very tiny little thing. At 12, I probably looked like I was eight. My sister Karen was at least a foot taller than I was. I was really a tiny thing. And so it was easy to manipulate every situation because he had taken me away from everything familiar. If you can learn something from this part of my story, because most people just go, how could anybody believe that? And I'm like, well, you try being 12. And I definitely was brainwashed. You also were being drugged too. So that alters your state of mind. Yes. While he was in that jail cell, we were waiting for my mom and dad to come, which took a couple of days for them to find a flight. I mean, it's not like it is today. It was like you're in little Pocatello, Idaho, and finally you get the message that she's been found. I'm sitting in this little tiny room watching the little mice run around the perimeter and go back into the floorboards. I'm scared to death and I haven't had anything to eat. They were nice to me, but I didn't speak Spanish at the time. Before mom and dad come, he bribes somebody to take me into his cell where he tells me that the aliens, they had names, Zeta and Zethra, had come to him and told him that if we talked about the very special mission and if we talked about the relaxing sleeping pills, that I was part alien. And then, of course, there couldn't be any talk of him being the male companion. Don't ever say those words and don't ever tell anybody that. And you can't have any other male companion. So even your dad, you should hardly talk to. You shouldn't have any boys at school that you talk to. Just don't do anything with any other males. So those were the four rules. And if I did, I would be vaporized, which 
to me sounded like you were going to die from the inside out by being steamed to death and that my little sister Susan was also half alien and half human, she would be taken. And if I broke one of the rules, the way I would know is that Karen, my other sister, would go blind. And that if I had a relationship with my dad and it was thought by them to be over the top or over a certain degree of just polite conversation, that he would be removed. And I knew that meant that they would kill him. My mom and my dad came to Mexico. They were like, well, we have to take you home. and. I didn't want to leave B there in that prison in Mexico. I was like, well, we have to take B with us. My dad was like, you will never set foot in our home again. I mean, my father had already started to see through him, but my mother had not seen through him to the degree that she would a year later. So even when the officers are like, well, he took your daughter to Mexico. My mom is like, yeah, but that's because he has depression. Once he went over the border and realized that he'd gone that far, we called you, the FBI, and now he can't come home. They're already defending him. That's what they want. Get people to the point where you will defend their actions. They look like the person that you could trust most. They look like your brother, your grandfather, your coach. They look like that person. And all of it is grooming. So as we piled into the plane and went home and I'm crying because I knew that there were four things that I couldn't talk about. And so as I returned home with all of these instructions in my little brain, knowing that we had not completed the mission, which I did not know how long it would take for an alien baby to grow inside of me and to be born because I had a whole different set of rules because I was half alien which was also very well planned out and executed in my instruction throughout the time that I was missing those 45 days. I got home wondering, okay, well, now what do I do? Okay, how am I going to get back to B so that the baby can happen and that the planet can be saved and that my little sister won't be taken and Karen's not blind and dad's not dead and all of us are going to be okay and I can just get back to normal. I think it took about a month but then he was extradited from Mexico and put into the little jail in Pocatello, Idaho. I remember getting on my bike and taking, like my mother is a wonderful cook. She would make these chocolate chip cookies to die for. And every time I would always take a few and I would hide them and I would write a little note and I would ride my bike down to the jail. I'd have it all in a little care package. I'd get somebody to take it inside. And of course, they could look at everything in it. That's what I did on my part. On his part, he found people in the jail who had children that went to the same school that I did. He would get that person to take a note. They would pass it to one of their kids who I didn't know, but they all knew who I was because my picture was in the paper every day because I was kidnapped. All the kids at school knew who I was. And I felt even more like an alien coming back into school and everybody looking at you and whispering behind your back. And you just knew that you were different. I would get a note from one of those kids. They'd come up to me. I was just barely in junior high school. I'm in seventh grade. And for me, it's already an awkward time. And then I get a note from somebody that would give me instructions. Go ride your bike out to this particular phone booth and sit on the floor. Four o'clock, the phone will ring. Pick it up. And I would do that. You know, hey, mom, I'm home from school. I'm going to go on a bike ride. I'd sit on the floor. The phone would ring, and there was either the alien voice of Zeta and Zethra talking to me, giving me instructions, or it was B. 
it's not like he's in jail anymore. He's extradited post bail. He's back in the neighborhood. He's at home with his wife and his kids. They're sitting three rows behind us at church. I just think people don't get a lot of the other parts of how these stories are until you actually hear it from the real person that it happened to. So my dad never let him back in the house, but he was relentless with my mother. He knew he still had a chance with my mom. And he was like calling our house every day. There's no voicemail. There's no caller ID. We certainly didn't have cell phones yet. So mom answers the phone, always calling when my dad's at work and he wants to talk to her. He says, Marianne, please don't hang up the phone. I just want to tell you what happened. And then of course it would escalate from that to Marianne. You know that the only person that I have been in love with since day one is you. I mean, it just escalated everything he did. This is months into it. Still no trial yet. They're gathering stuff for their case. He's posted bail. He's home with his family. He lives in the neighborhood. Well, it got so bad for Gail and the kids, she demanded that they move to Ogden, which was about a couple hours away from Pocatello. Us kids were putting all this pressure on her to take us to Ogden. We want to see our friends. I want to see my friends. I want to be with my friends. And so my mom sometimes would take us down there on a weekend. My dad was furious and he was like, you have got to stop taking them. I know the girls love these kids and it's not the kids fault. Their dad should never have done that. He has disrespected me and he's never coming back in our home and everybody just better get used to that idea. We were all like, oh dad, he's just mad. My sister Karen writes about it in her little diary about how mad she is at our dad, our wonderful dad, because he won't let us go see our friends. It's just so interesting how complete he orchestrated that all of us would have a best friend by the time that he took me that first time. This is what's in the background. All of these little trips and him calling my mom two or three times every day, trying to get her to talk to him. And as he continued to pressure her, she finally went down there. She'd taken us several times. And at one point she went to where he had parked that motorhome, that same motorhome, and went there, stayed too long, wanted to hear why he had done it. Still lots of chemistry between the two of them. And that's when she had her short-lived affair with him. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next, on What Came Next. This time he took me to Southern California, and I was put into a Catholic boarding school. He told the nuns that he was a CIA agent and that people might come looking for me and that they should give them no information because they were trying to get to him, and they believed him. Thank you, Kitch, for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com slash WCN. That's right, 30% off everything at mykitsch, spelled M-Y-K-I-T-S-C-H dot com slash WCN. One more time, mykitsch.com slash WCN for 30% off your order. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.